0: What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the (laughs) hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about?
1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Welcome to our podcast.
0: Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, first of all, a programming note. We have started a substack for the podcast. And so if you go to our substack, there'll be a little description of the, of the podcast, some highlights of it, the transcript, but most importantly, what we're adding are show notes. So we do a lot of research for every podcast. Our producer, Jackson, puts together amazing research. And if you want to do a deep dive into the subject, not just listening to what we say, but also going through the research that we read to prepare, we'll have the show notes there and links to all the articles that we read to get started smart on this podcast so you can get smart too. Danny, where do they go to get the substack?
1: So what you're gonna do is go to what the hell is going on, just like that one word, dot substack dot com. And again, as Mark said, We've been posting the transcript and highlights. I'm going to stop posting the transcript at the bottom and just give you guys a link, but we will start posting our show notes, and that way you'll really get a sense. It's like a Cliff Notes version of the podcast. If you're busy in a hurry, it's got the highlights, it's got a little summary, and it's got all of the research that Jackson's done for us that we've read to inform us. So please do sign
0: up, share it with your friends, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yes, also subscribe and rate us and all the rest of it and tell your friends to listen to the show. Now we have actual substance in this podcast today. We do. And
1: <laughs> Mark, what the hell is going on in Ukraine?
0: That's a very good question. What the <laughs> hell is going on in Ukraine? So last week, President Biden gave his first major two-hour press conference, and we discovered why he's not allowed to do two-hour press conferences. Oh, because the more he talks, the more cleanup on aisle. I think it was cleanup on aisle five, cleanup on aisle six, cleanup on aisle seven. Oh, it was it's just a disaster. Just on multiple fronts. But the worst one was on Ukraine, where he said that if there was a minor incursion into Ukraine, then uh, we'd have a debate with our allies as to what we would do in response. I mean, a minor incursion? First of all, a minor incursion was what happened in the Obama-Biden administration in 2014 when they invaded and annexed Crimea. I guess that would be a minor incursion. They didn't march on Kiev and take over the whole country. They just took a little piece of it. So I guess we're allowed to take pieces of countries now, Danny. So I guess Xi Jinping is listening in Beijing and watching all this. So he probably can't march on Taipei. But if he wants to take some Taiwanese islands, that's all right. That would be just a minor incursion. That wouldn't cause a lot of problems. This administration just keeps projecting weakness. And weakness is provocative. Weakness tempts people to test your will. And in the case of the Biden administration, our will is not that strong. So we don't want our will to be tested. If you project strength and people are deterred from testing your will, and this could have consequences not just to do with Russia, but in Asia, in the Middle East and other places. I just am stunned at every time we'd have to do a podcast about the foreign policy topic. And I think it can't get worse.
1: So I think it's important that people understand this because, you know, Mark, you rightly say that what happens in Ukraine won't stay in Ukraine. And when you think about this... The Vegas of foreign policy? Maybe it is. In a lot of ways it is. But we don't pay a lot of attention to foreign policy on a day-to-day basis. You know, And why should you? You've got real stuff going on. You're not thinking about Putin massing troops on Ukraine. And when you do think about it, it's like, eh, Okay. I mean, that sounds bad, but... And I think it's important to understand the range of challenges that are facing us right now, because it's not just Putin challenging us on the borders of Ukraine, Putin trying to destroy the Westphalian system of sovereign countries that has existed without challenge in large part since the end of World War II. It is the fact that around the world, we've got China threatening Taiwan. Around the world, we've got Iran behaving in a much more aggressive fashion in the Middle East. North Korea launched four missiles in the last week. These are not coincidences. These things are not all happening at the same time because there's some karmic reason for it. These are happening, and I wrote about this last week in the dispatch, but these things are happening because every single bad guy in the world senses opportunity. Now, does that mean that we're the world's policemen and we have to stop every single bad guy? No. But at least we want to project sufficient strength and sufficient support for the system that keeps us safe and secure that it doesn't begin to fall apart, which it 100%
0: is. Because this is a lot of people are who look at this and say, what do we care about Ukraine? Why does Ukraine matter? A small country far away of which we know little. Well, that's how Biden seems to be approaching it, channeling his inner Chamberlain, but I mean what does Ukraine matter? Do we really want to go to war over Ukraine? Of course, we don't. No one wants to go to war over Ukraine, but we have tools other than military tools to deter people. And the problem is, as you say, what happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine, that if this is allowed to stand, if Putin is allowed to invade Ukraine, then Xi Jinping may decide uh, it's okay to invade Taiwan. And all of a sudden, there's lots of aggression and lots of wars getting started all over that we didn't anticipate. The magic of the Reagan doctrine was a peace through strength is that when you project strength, you get peace. When you project weakness, you get war. It makes it more likely that we're going to have to go to war somewhere if we allow this kind of aggression to stand. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Putin started doing this a few months after our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. And by the way, it was just weeks after that, that Xi Jinping started sending record numbers of military sorties strafing Taiwan this could go out of control in a global way in short order if we don't handle this properly and contain it to Ukraine. So the piece I wrote in The Dispatch was basically about the original sin
1: being the decision to scuttle out of Afghanistan. And at the end of the piece, what I wrote was, it didn't really work out well for the Soviet Union to have been defeated in Afghanistan. <laughs> and it's not going to work out well for us either. Yeah. And even if you choose to lose, even if you weren't defeated, you just choose to lose, for whatever reason, is going to have consequences. And so when people say, oh, you know, whatever, Afghanistan, they suck anyway, you know, my favorite argument from our democratic internationalist friends, you know, they sucked anyway, look how they fell apart. Well, there are consequences for us. And the problem for us is I don't think that Putin has in any way the kind of power that we saw exercised by the Soviet Union, right? This is not the Soviet Union. It wouldn't require the kind of effort on the part of the United States and our European allies to actually stand up. It wouldn't require World War II or III to have Putin stand back, but there's nothing. There's absolutely no pushback. And the dialogue that was conducted between the weak-kneed lamos of the Biden administration and the Russians last week over this that ended in complete ignominious failure is just a perfect example. The Russians didn't walk away saying, oh, my God, I'm afraid of what they might do. They walked away going, these people are idiots and losers. We can do whatever we want.
0: Yep, and that's dangerous because if the Russians are saying that, and so are the Chinese, or so the North Koreans, or so the Iranians, so is Al Qaeda, so is ISIS.
1: So are the freaking Houthis. I okay. mean, it literally, it doesn't have to be a serious power with nuclear America. weapons like North Korea. The Houthis all of a sudden attacked the United Arab Emirates last week with drones and killed three civilians. Weakness w- is
0: provocative. Right. It's just that simple. So we have to project strength. So what does projecting strength in Ukraine mean, Danny? What should we be doing?
1: Well, I think that, again, we have an understanding of what Russia's Achilles heels are. Putin is a dictator. Yes, it's true that he has a certain popularity in the sort of mother Russia nostalgics in the country. But domestically, he's delivered very, very little for the Russian people. They don't make anything. They live entirely on their oil exports. Oh, wait a moment. They live entirely on their oil exports.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Who else does that? Wait a moment. Oh, yeah, Iran. (laughs) Could we go after their oil exports? Yes, we could. Hmm. Are they part of the international financial system? Hmm. Would that be painful to them? Why, yes. I think it might. Have either of those two threats been uttered by Joe Mr. Loquacious Biden? No.
0: Nope. And I'll tell you the other thing is that... One of the other projections of weakness that precipitated all of this was Biden's complete capitulation on Nord Stream 2. For those who haven't followed that, we have a podcast on it, but it's this pipeline that Germany and Russia are building under the Baltic Sea, which will allow them to get natural gas exports from Russia to bypass Ukraine. Because right now, all of their energy exports go through pipelines that cross Ukraine. So if Russia wants to cut off Ukraine and squeeze the Ukrainians, they also have to cut off energy exports to Western Europe. And this would allow them to bypass Ukraine. So they could squeeze the Ukrainians and cut off their natural gas without cutting off their lucrative exports to the rest of Europe. And quite frankly, what we ought to do is tell the... I mean, just what's happened so far without even an invasion has demonstrated the folly of the Nord Stream 2 project to begin with. We've learned now that we should not give Putin a new tool that he can use to squeeze the Ukrainians. So the first step should be simply, I've changed my mind. Nord Stream 2 is dead. And that's a punishment for what you've done so far. Put a cost on just the escalation and the troop presence on the border and all the threats that he's doing. We haven't even put any consequences on that as opposed to cowering and saying, well, if you do anything more than a minor incursion, then we'll be really, really angry. We'll be really, really angry and send you a strongly worded letter. Put a cost on this so far and say, you want more of that? (laughs) Here's what it's going to look look like. Here's what it's going to look like. And Russian banks are going to be sanctioned. You are getting kicked out of the SWIFT system, which is the international banking system. And oh, by the way, you're not going to be able to export oil or gas to Europe or the United States or anywhere else. If you like the sanctions that we put on Iran under the Trump administration, you're going to love the sanctions we put on you.
1: And I think it's, you know, I think there are going to be those who say, well, the Europeans aren't going to go along with it. And I think the Europeans are wimpier partly because they're closer, partly because they're more afraid, partly because they're just intrinsically wimpier.
0: Just because they're European. (laughs)
1: I'm not touching that one. But we had the same discussion about Iran. When Donald Trump came to power and the Obama administration had given away everything at the store to the Iranians, the Europeans said, there's no way you can reimpose these sanctions without us, and we're not going to support you in reimposing them. And I will say, the Trump administration said, you seem confused. (laughs) Yes, we are. And damn if they didn't. And I think the Europeans were quite surprised. Now, would this be more difficult in the case of a Europe that has really positioned itself underneath Russia's jackbooted heel on the question of energy? Yeah, it would be
0: more difficult. Could we do it if we had the guts? You bet we could. You know what part of that strategy might want to be? Call off your war on domestic production of fossil fuels. And maybe we should be the ones who are selling to Europe as opposed to the Russians. One of the problems may be in the spinal fortitude of our NATO allies is that they get 40% of their energy exports from Russia. Maybe if we reduce the amount that they're getting from Russia and increase the amount they're getting from a stable ally like the United States, they might have more intestinal fortitude or spinal fortitude or combination there. <laughs>
1: they, they, they might. Amen for them. Because for a group of countries that spent an enormous amount of time bitching about how they were worried whether America was going to stand with them over the last four years, they seem to be doing precious little to get America to oh. stand firmly with them right now.
0: But uh, enough yeah. about me. Let's stop our critique of the Euroweenies and uh, turn to our guest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so this is Chris Miller's first time with us on the podcast. Chris is a Jean Kirkpatrick visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's really terrific. He focuses on Russian foreign policy, politics and economics, Russia, Ukraine. He also, interestingly, and we're going to have to have him back, focuses on semiconductors. He's got a new book coming out about semiconductors, which is just fascinating, but we don't talk about that too much today. He is an assistant professor of international history at Fletcher School. He's written a book called, We Shall Be Masters, Russian Pivots to Asia from Peter the Great to Putin, and Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia. He's a perfect guest to have today, and we're just delighted to have him. Here's
0: our interview. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you just had a terrific piece in Foreign Affairs, the title of which was Russia Thinks America is Bluffing. Is Russia
2: right? Well, I hope not, but I think it's hard to be sure. I think the Biden administration has been trying to signal toughness vis-a-vis Russia, given Russia's threats to invade Ukraine. But I'm not convinced that this is actually going to work in deterring Russia. I'm worried the Russians are actually going to escalate, send their military into Ukraine. And then if so, our deterrence efforts will have failed. So I think the Biden administration needs to do more to look tougher to actually convince Putin to stay out of Ukraine. And that means more on the economic front, but it probably also means more in terms of aiding the Ukraine militarily, because an actual invasion would be disastrous for Ukraine, for the region, but also for American credibility. And, you know, that's something that I think the Biden administration needs to take more seriously than it's actually been taking.
0: Talk us through what the consequences of that failure of returns in Ukraine could be. Because a lot of Americans look at Ukraine and say, why do I care what happens to Ukraine? Why does this matter to America? Why is this important to us that Vladimir Putin cannot go in and invade and possibly annex Ukraine to
2: Russia? I think there are two answers to that question. One is to look at Ukraine and Russia and the region itself. And then the second is to look at the broader global implications. If you start with the region first, If it happens, if a war begins, this will be Russia's third major war in the last 15 years, first in Georgia, then Ukraine in 2014, 2015, then perhaps another one coming up soon to set aside Russia's uh, interventions across the Middle East. Russia's demonstrated that it's a destabilizing force in the region. And the less we do to stop it, the hungrier Vladimir Putin gets when he comes to reestablishing Russia's sphere of influence in the region. So it's not really just about Ukraine, although the consequences for Ukraine would be pretty disastrous. It's about, ultimately, what are the rules that control Eastern Europe? What are the rules that govern European security? Can Russia march into other countries whenever it wants to? And you know, the answer of the past 10, 15 years has been actually kind of yes. Not just Russia. No one, right. and Not just Russia. That's right. China. Yeah, China's the other the other factor here because China's gonna be watching Ukraine very, very closely. And the frightening thing to me is that the tools that we're hoping will deter Russia from Ukraine are the same tools we're hoping that will deter China from, for example, moving on Taiwan. And so if those tools fail here, if our threats of diplomatic pressure, of economic isolation don't work in this case, are they gonna work against China when it comes to Taiwan? I worry about that. It seems to me that everyone in Beijing is watching very closely as to what happens.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. So let's step backwards for a second. You're a Russia nerd, among other nerdly pursuits of yours. But most people just kind of, you know, are not spending their time doing anything other than dipping their toes in and out of the headlines about Russia and Ukraine. Just start us out with a really quick cliff notes primer. What exactly gives Russia the belief that they have some right? Right. Some claim, not just to Crimea, which they invaded and annexed, which is part of Ukraine, but to the rest of Ukraine. What's the backstory
2: here? Well, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union had long been of the belief that they deserved and needed a sphere of control around their territory to provide for their own security. And so there's hundreds of years of history that you can go back through of Russia trying to gain territory around them to provide a sort of buffer zone between them and their neighbors. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Soviets were forced to withdraw from Eastern Europe, Russia had a period in which it didn't have this type of buffer zone around it and have this type of sphere that it could control. And so since Putin took power in 2000, and since he began rebuilding the Russian military, reestablishing Russia as a sort of functional government with a strong state, one of his key goals has been to rebuild this sphere of control as well. You know, I don't think there's a Particularly strong legal case to be made that Russia has any right whatsoever to controlling or influencing Ukraine. But there's certainly a long track record of Russia believing that it does have this right. And I think when you go down to the core of it, the right is really just a a Russian belief that if you've got the power to take it, then no one's going to stand against you and stop you. And that unfortunately has been the case over the past decade or two in Georgia in 2008 when Russia invaded there. then, as you say, in Crimea and other parts of Ukraine in 2014, 2015. But I think this is ultimately the core question is, does Russia have the ability to force countries to be in its sphere of control, to influence their domestic politics, to have a veto over their foreign policy or not? And the U.S. has said the answer is no. The Ukrainians have insisted they don't want to be part of the Russian sphere. But Russia's got a powerful military. Ukraine's a smaller country. And, you no, know, it's not going to be easy for Ukraine on their own to stand up to Russia when Russia is willing to use every military tool it's got to push Ukraine back into their sphere of control.
1: So two quick follow-ups. One thing that you do hear from the Russians, and this was alluded to actually in an accusation made by the State Department in the last week that Russia was actually trying to plan a false flag operation inside Ukraine as a sort of casus belli for them to invade, is that Hitler style? The Russians have to go into Ukraine to protect the rights of Russian ethnic Ukrainian nationals. Is there any truth to that at all?
2: I think if you were to do a deep analysis of Ukraine's policies towards language or towards schooling, you could find things you might want to change on the margin as to Ukraine's policies towards Russian and Ukrainian languages. I think there are small things that I think the Ukrainians probably could do better on, but nothing remotely corresponding with the types of allegations that Russia makes. And I think the best piece of evidence is that if you look at polling in the regions of Ukraine where more people speak Russian and where there are more ethnic Russians, there's been a really sharp shift in public opinion over just the past couple of months and several years in favor of more integration with the West and joining NATO in particular. Uh, just in the past six months, there's been a swing in eastern Ukraine, which is the historically the more Russian-speaking part of the country in favor of NATO membership. So this to me suggests that there's not really much reality at all to the Russian claims. And even Russian speakers in Ukraine don't really buy the Russian story and instead would rather be able to think about joining the EU and think about by joining NATO at some point. So I think we shouldn't really take Russian claims very seriously on this front. Yes, Ukraine's not a perfect country, no country is, but that doesn't justify an invasion in any sense. So let's talk about the
0: Biden press conference the other day. I mean, first of all, the concession that Russia could make a minor incursion. You know, I guess Crimea was a minor incursion compared to like invasion and take over the entire country. But also, he sort of said something to the effect that Ukraine's not going to join NATO anytime soon because it's not politically ready to do it. or is that Instead of defending, like, the open-door policy explicitly, he's sort of making these concessions and telling Putin that he can do a minor incursion, then backtracking but defining what a minor incursion is. First of all, how much damage did he do? And second of all, shouldn't the message just be we should have some strategic ambiguity as to what the consequences will be, not laying out like he did with Putin saying there are 14 areas of our economy that are off limits to cyber strikes, which means, well, everything else is okay. It's like he's doing the same thing on Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. That is interesting. It's clear that the administration was pretty embarrassed by what the president said because they released a press release shortly thereafter, correcting the record, saying what they wished he had said. I do think, though, that Biden's slip-up does speak to a a challenge the U.S. faces in Ukraine, which is that although, you know, I think the U.S. ought to be very clear that any violation of any new violation is already an ongoing violation. Any new violation of Ukrainian borders ought to induce a pretty tough response. There's a challenge in getting all of our European allies on board. In some ways, I think Biden was a bit too honest with the challenge that the U.S. faces, because if you look at, for example, Germany which is, you know, in some ways, a key European ally, in some ways, the most problematic country in Europe, there's a lot of people in these European allies that would know, be very happy to turn a blind eye to a quote unquote, small invasion. And so that is, I think, a challenge that US policymakers have to face is how you drag the Germans forward towards a tougher line when German political debate is still stuck with its head in the sand about what Russia is actually planning to do.
1: So, you bring us to a very important topic. You're probably younger than me and Mark. In fact, I know you're younger than me and Mark. But at a certain moment, our European allies, France, but it could apply to others, were referred to rather rudely in Washington as cheese-eating surrender monkeys. And Yerowenies. And while... <laughs> <laughs> while...
0: Remember the famous Euroweenie article?
1: It, it trips off the tongue, I'll tell you. But, you know, The reality is that this is a huge problem, not just for transatlantic relations, but also for NATO. Our European allies don't want to do this. And I think that for a lot of Western
0: European allies. Our Western, well. The old Europe and new Europe have very different views on that.
1: Well, Mark, let's talk about your buddies in Budapest and Warsaw afterwards. But (laughs) hang on a second. We've always pinned in recent years, Germany's weakness on Russia, Germany's willingness to front for Putin, Germany's willingness to subjugate itself and its energy needs to Russia as really an Angela Merkel problem. This is really her. This is her problem. She just doesn't want to do it. But now Angela Merkel is gone. We have a new government. It's not run by the CDU. It's run by two different political parties. And yet they have been, I would say, as weak as Merkel was. What the hell is going on? don't they realize this is a bigger threat to them than it is to
2: us? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think even the sort of old Europe, new Europe divide, I think it actually, it sort of misses the dynamics in Europe today, because it's not even just Eastern and Western Europe that's divided. It's really most of Europe is of one view. And then Germany's kind of off on its own. If you look, for example, at who's supporting the Ukrainians with military aid, well, you've got Denmark, you've got the Netherlands, you've got the Swedes have been very out in front on this issue. So it's not even an East-West divide. It's just a Germany and most of the rest of Europe divide. What's wrong with them? (laughs) I I think There's there's a couple of things, I think, that the Germans get hung up on. First is that they've got this inaccurate historical memory of Germany having victimized Russia during World War II, when in fact, the greatest victims of German aggression were the countries in between Germany and Russia, Ukraine chief among them. But that's a problem because in German debate, always have this argument confronted of, well, we've got this historical problem with Russia, we need to atone for what we've done. And that leads to kind of frustrating, uh, soft policy on Russia today. I think a second issue is that the Germans are deeply afraid of conflicts becoming militarized. And that's you know, a natural, I guess, feeling to have. But you know, the reality is that Russia's already militarized a series of conflicts across Europe today. And there's a frustrating willingness to sort of write this off to tensions on both sides or escalation on both sides when anyone who looks clearly at the situation can pretty clearly identify who's actually causing this. So I do think we need to put more pressure on our German friends, but also kind of help them realize what's going on. It doesn't take that much effort to look at Russia and understand it for what it is. And the fact that the Netherlands and Denmark and Sweden and everyone else around Germany has kind of realized the problem for what it is suggests that there's something in German analysis that just isn't stacking up.
0: Well, German analysis should look at Ukraine through the prism of the Sudetenland because that's what it is in the broader context. But look, speaking of Germany... One of the signs of weakness that has provoked Putin, in addition to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, is Biden's complete capitulation on Nord Stream 2 and the German insistence on going forward is because he wanted to appease the Germans. And you actually write that Nord Stream 2 doesn't matter that much, that there's uh, plenty of natural gas pipelines and that uh, if Nord Stream 2 gets canceled, Russia will simply keep shipping gas to Europe through existing routes. Then why build it, if that's the case? And why does it matter?
1: Can I tack something onto Mark's question about this? There was a great piece in the Financial Times as well about energy prices in Europe and about how, because they are dependent for their oil supply on Russia to the tune of about 40% at this point, Russia's really got a chokehold on them and they're talking about the potential for rolling blackouts. I mean, again, why? And then why? And then why?
2: why? (laughs) (laughs) So why did Russia want to build Nord Stream 2? I think the answer is that Russia today transports most of its gas to Europe via pipelines that run through Ukraine. And for Russia, that creates a couple of dilemmas. One is that the Russians have had a series of disputes with the Ukrainians over gas pricing over the past couple of years. That's sort of a commercial question. But then beyond that, I think more importantly is the geopolitical question, which is that if you transit most of your gas through Ukraine, then Ukraine is very important for Europe and peace in Ukraine is very important for Europe. Whereas if you transit your gas through a pipeline that runs under the Baltic Sea, then if something bad were to happen in Ukraine, Germany and the rest of Europe could keep the lights on, keep their gas being supplied, even if the Ukrainian pipeline was disrupted. And so that gives Russia a ton of leverage over Ukraine, because the Russians can go to the Ukrainians and say, we're going to cut off your gas supply, or we're going to put 100,000 troops on your border. And so long as we've got the pipeline, it's not going to threaten the rest of Europe's gas supplies. That's the reason it was built. It was very clearly a political project supported by the Kremlin, coming from the Kremlin from the outset.
0: So why are the Germans such dupes to the Russians on this, number one? And two, putting aside whether Putin even puts a single boot over Ukraine's border, hasn't this whole crisis taught us that Nord Stream 2 has to be shut down for that very reason? because if Ukraine barely matters to Germany and some of these other countries right now, it's going to matter a lot less if the Russians can sell their gas to Western Europe and bypass Ukraine.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think Nord Stream 2 should have never been started. It shouldn't be finished. I still think there's some hope that the Germans end up not certifying it and gas never flows. That's absolutely right. And if you look around Europe and ask yourself which European countries support the completion of Nord Stream 2, you'll find that Germany doesn't have any friends in this because most of Europe thinks this is an example of Germany pursuing its own commercial self-interest rather than the European interest or the Western interest. So I think that's right. I think what's wrong about Nord Stream 2 is to think that the Kremlin cares that much if it gets canceled. From Russia's perspective, Nord Stream 2 has already accomplished half of the goal in creating this massive division in the transatlantic alliance with dividing Germany from the rest of Europe. It's already doing the Kremlin's work for them. So I think it ought to be canceled. I think the Germans should cancel it. I think it's not... Sanctions are a reasonable tool, but we shouldn't think that canceling Nord Stream 2 is going to hurt Putin in any sort of meaningful way because he's already got gas pipelines that are transiting all the gas that he needs to sell through Ukraine. So there's going to be no economic cost to Russia if the pipeline gets canceled. And if we're looking to impose economic costs, which I think we ought to threaten in an attempt to deter Russia from moving into Ukraine, we've got to look for something that is going to be costlier, more significant. So.
1: We have some disagreement inside our little foreign policy family at the American Enterprise Institute. I suspect it's not as deep a disagreement as I'm going to make it sound like for dramatic effect. But Leon Aaron, who I know you know, is one of our Russia studies scholars and has written some beautiful work on Russia and on Putin, thinks that Putin will not invade for very straightforward reasons. What he actually wrote to all of us was that he thought that the performance art on the Ukrainian border was just that for a domestic audience intended to signal strength and power to Putin's people at a time when he's less and less popular, and that The Russian people are fine going along with quick and dirty operations in which Russia looks good like Crimea or Syria, but that somewhere where he might get bogged down, which may have real costs like invading all of Ukraine, would not be a wise course for him and therefore he's not considering it. Why do you disagree? Not to pit you two against each other.
2: (laughs) Well, first of all, I hope that he's right and that I'm wrong. Same. I'm not sure we should conclude that the Russians are going to undertake an operation that would let them get bogged down. If you look at the Russian war in Georgia, 2008, the period in 2014, 2015, when you had large numbers of regular Russian military forces deployed in Ukraine rather than sort of the kind of militias that Russia set up, and you actually had serious Russian military forces fighting in Ukraine. When you look at Syria as well over the past couple of years, what you find, I think, is that Russia has actually been very careful in each of these wars to not have its regular military forces occupying large chunks of territory and to keep the fighting limited in a way that's carefully calculated to achieve Russia's political goals. And so what I worry about is not Russia trying to invade and conquer all of Ukraine, occupying major cities. I think that's probably not the playbook. I'm worried about a repetition of Georgia 2008, a war that just took a couple of days, five days. Russia won on the battlefield, marched its troops to the outskirts of Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, but not into the city, and then forced the Georgian government to offer a series of political concessions. I think that type of operation wouldn't cause Russia to get bogged down. It would be hard for the Ukrainians to defend against. And I think it would also promote chaos in the Western response if it was time limited I have no doubt we'd have voices from Europe saying, oh, well, they're about to withdraw. Maybe we shouldn't impose any consequences on them. That's what I'm worried about when I'm thinking about Russian escalation. I think it would be tough for the Biden administration and tough for European allies to devise a response that would be remotely coherent and would do anything to stop it. So let's talk
0: about how to stop it. One of the points that you've made is that the challenge America faces is that sanctions would hurt Russia, but they'd hurt us too, and particularly they'd hurt Western Europe because Russia's economy, it doesn't export much except gas and oil. So you would have to impose crushing sanctions on Russian gas and Russian oil. And as we just had this discussion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and Europe's dependence, they're already having rolling blackouts in Europe. I think 40% of the natural gas comes from Russia now. Is Europe willing to put those kinds of consequences and accept the pain of losing that Russian natural gas in order to punish them over Ukraine?
2: Yeah, I think that's the dilemma. If you look at U.S. sanctions on North Korea or Iran or Venezuela, in some ways they were easier because these are all pretty small economies and the world economy didn't really notice when they were cut off from international trade. Russia is a medium sized economy, not huge, but as you say, it does supply a lot of energy to not only Europe, but to the world via global oil markets. And so it would be meaningful if we imposed tough sanctions on Russia. There would be companies that would be unable to sell to Russians, commodities, it'd be harder to buy abroad. And so for the entire world, especially for Europe, it would be costly. And that's been the issue thus far. In 2014, Obama decided not to impose really tough sanctions on Russia for that exact reason. He wanted to keep Merkel and the Europeans on board. I do worry that we're not willing to impose the types of costs on Russia that would be necessary to deter an invasion precisely for that reason. I think there's a, a misunderstanding in parts of Washington that you can impose targeted or smart sanctions on Russia. And if you hit oligarchs close to Putin, that'll be enough. I think that's a myth. I think targeted sanctions can't work. Putin doesn't wake up in the morning asking himself, How can I maximize Russian GDP growth? And so, in order to get the message across, I don't think you can say, I'm going to reduce your GDP by 0.1% a year. I hope you don't like that. I think it's got to be severe. It's got to make a difference. It's got to be something that every Russian can notice and notices immediately. And that's the type of sanction that I think could have a chance of working against Russia, but it's also the type of sanction that would impose some economic costs on us too. But foreign policy is not cost-free and you know a Russian invasion of Ukraine isn't cost-free either.
0: And also, one of the things that is causing massive problems politically for the Biden administration going into the 2022 midterms is the gas prices are through the roof. So is Biden going to be willing to impose the kind of sanctions on Russia that could be blamed for an increase in gas prices here at home? Americans paying more at the pump.
1: That could happen for sure. That's a dilemma. So- One of the things that I remember at the time of the Russian invasion and occupation and then subsequent annexation of Crimea, we had a delegation of German Bundestag parliamentarians visiting with us at the American Enterprise Institute. And it was a private meeting and quiet, so off the record, but I'm going to repeat it because it was so gross, it deserves to be repeated. But the basic thrust of the German message at the time, and this was a bipartisan group, was Are you kidding? Ukraine? Those people are gross that government is disgusting. They're a bunch of kleptocrats. Are you trying to tell me we need to do something about that to defend them? No, not going to do that. Does that at all underpin some of the reluctance in part of Europe to do more for the Ukrainians?
2: I think it does. I think even in the U.S. you hear that argument made and there's certainly things we would like Ukraine to do differently domestically. There's corruption issues. There's oligarchs. There's lots of things that Ukraine ought to do to reform itself domestically. A lot of the problems, you know, by the way, are, are supported, and built up by Russia and by the fact that Russia is currently occupying two chunks of Ukrainian territory. But you know, I don't think anyone should be under the illusion that Ukraine is a country of saints. No country is. That's a reality. But I think that's sort of tangential to the issue here. The issue is not is Ukraine governed perfectly? The issue is, should we let Russia invade one of its neighbors and grab a chunk of territory potentially? I think the answer to that is no, regardless of the quality of governance in Ukraine. So I think we should set that kind of question to the side. Hopefully we can retain peace between Russia and Ukraine. Hopefully we can end the Russian occupation of the Donbass and Crimea. And then there'd be a great opportunity to discuss how do you improve the situation in Ukraine? How do you reduce corruption? It doesn't seem to me that it all follows that if there's some corruption in Ukrainian politics or if there are some oligarchs, therefore the solution is to give Russia a free hand as if more Russian influence is going to reduce the influence of oligarchs in Ukrainian politics. It would be the opposite.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the game of chicken here. So the United States obviously is much more powerful country than Russia economically and militarily and diplomatically. But our friend Yaroslav Trofimov, who's from The Wall Street Journal, who's been a recidivist guest on the podcast, he has a piece on the front page of The Wall Street Journal. And he writes, when Vladimir Putin was a young KGB recruit, his intelligence assessment noted a character flaw. Russia's future president possessed a, quote, lowered sense of danger, it said, meaning that he was prone to take unwarranted risk does Putin have a lowered sense of danger? And is he willing to take more risks than we are? And in a
2: game of chicken, does that give him the advantage? I think it's certainly the case that Putin wants it to be seen that he's willing to take more risks, because as you say, that does give him an advantage. But I actually don't think that it's right to see the Russians as overly risk-taking. And again, if you look at their most recent wars over the past decade and a half, I think what you find is not actually extensive risk-taking, but the opposite. They're constantly testing the waters, seeing what the response is, and only then deciding whether or not to take the next step on the escalatory ladder. And that's what I think makes the next couple of weeks so important, is that Russia's right now testing the waters, seeing what will the Western response be if they march in. So if they're testing the waters, what should the Biden administration do? I think this is the time to tell the Russians and to show and to make very clear if the Russians do move in, there's going to be a devastating economic response and state explicitly what we're going to sanction and how much of an effect it's going to have. And to say, if you do this, we're going to provide X and Y military support to the Ukrainians. The Biden administration has been sort of saying the right things, but I think doing much less, specifying much less than they ought to be doing.
0: What Definitely. should they say? What should yeah. the consequences be? If you were sitting in the Oval Office with Biden right now and saying, this is what you should tell Putin, what would
2: it be? I think we should list the banks that we will sanction on day one. which should have a devastating impact on the Russian economy. Right now, no one knows. No one knows which banks will be sanctioned. I think we should target Russian oil exports like we do with Iran if Russia enters Ukraine. Right now, that's off the table. No one is considering that. Have they specifically
1: said that's off the table?
2: In all of the leaks to the media, no one has put that on the table. Unbelievable. What else? Those two would be, on their own, hugely impactful for the Russian economy. I think the other side is, how do you support the Ukrainians militarily? It's certainly possible that our aid to the Ukrainians over the next couple of weeks will impact Russia's calculus. And the fact that we've got a lot of European allies that are doing the same, from the Brits to Denmark to the Baltic states, I think also sends a pretty powerful message. It seems to me that the more you do on that front, the less likely Putin is to choose an option that leads to a bigger war. None of these steps I think we can save for sure will impact Russian calculus, but I think there's no doubt that the clearer we are and the higher the costs are, the less likely Putin is to try something big. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to deter.
1: So this is my honest exit question. When Donald Trump was president, low though many years ago, he was excoriated, rightly, I think, for undermining NATO for questioning Article 5, for wondering why it was that we would let countries like Montenegro in. He We're got... Getting the NATO ri-
0: allies to pay more of them to pay their 2% GDP and increase that, that, their yes. NATO commitments. I, yeah, and that. I'm actually all trying to,
1: that. I'm trying to make a different point. I know you are. <laughs> he was excoriated for all of that, and it was big headline news. Certainly in our national security world, it was the subject of great gnashing of teeth and beating of breasts. And yet... I ask myself, what is our non-reaction? What is NATO's non-reaction to a wholesale invasion of another country by Russia going to do to the most important alliance in the modern era? What is this going to mean for NATO?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're going to have to look both to what the US does, but also to what Europe does. Because it seems to me that if the Biden administration doesn't do enough to help Ukraine, doesn't do enough to deter Russia, that will be really meaningful for NATO. I'm also really worried about what the, especially the German also the French response will say about NATO as well. I think you're right that in some ways, the rhetoric coming out of the White House is more pro-NATO than in the past. But The fact is that this crisis is more dangerous than anything we saw for the previous four years for the future of NATO and for European security. So, yeah, I think you're right to say this is a dangerous point for NATO. It's hard to predict how it's going to play out. That's not a great answer to your question, Danny. (laughs) I think that's the best answer we have at this point with all the uncertainty about what Putin's going to do. —
0: Agreed. — Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. That was really informative. And we're glad to have you as a colleague here at AEI. — Thanks again. All right, Danny. So you pointed out the Trump record and how everybody complained about all the damage that Donald Trump was doing to the NATO alliance. And I jumped on you a little bit prematurely because you were making a point, which is, what about Biden? (laughs) And I mean, honestly, Joe Biden has done more damage to the NATO alliance in one year than Donald Trump did in four years.
1: The funny thing is, I know a great story about Joe Biden, which I've repeated pretty sparingly. And people May not hear it because it's toward the end of our podcast. But Joe Biden through. was, of course, they yeah, do. But Joe Biden was one of the biggest supporters of NATO expansion. The and NATO they were expansion. were in the Senate
0: Foreign Relations Committee when NATO expansion started. And he exactly, was ranking member,
1: and he was, and he managed the bill on the floor for the Democrats. And I still remember to this day that another senator, who shall go unnamed, Chris Dodd, opposed it and opposed because he was, uh, he was fronting for his friends who thought it was a bad idea for a whole variety of reasons that are not relevant right now. Anyway, but Biden controlled the time and Biden supported the bill and Dodd did not. And so he came over and he asked Biden for time and Biden said, sure, sure, sure. And lo and behold, time ended and the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee had not given any time to his colleague to speak on the bill and to oppose it. And Dada was quite angry and came over and started berating Biden. And Biden turned around and said, fuck you. <laughs> Just like that. Could, From a person could get who Can that old there. Joe Biden
0: back? I phase. know. I it. don't even know if he remembers that story, much less that he could do it again. I mean, but that's, that's the thing. Yeah.
1: That's the Joe Biden that I want. Yeah. And because he I'll, was I'll in th- the right place and he even, was
0: courageous in the defense of his principles. I will take you even further back. In the 1970s, during the Ford administration, when Joe Biden was just elected to the United States Senate, there was a controversy where the Ford administration did not want to invite Alexander Solzhenitsyn to Washington, D.C. to meet with the president. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago. Nobel Prize winner. Nobel Prize winner, documented the Soviet labor camps, was a bete Noir of the Politburo. And so... Who stepped up to invite him to Capitol Hill? It was Jesse Helms, Scoop Jackson, and Joe Biden, right. who stood up to the Ford administration, stood up to the Soviets, and invited Solzhenitsyn to Capitol Hill. So where is that Joe Biden today? I mean, the idea that Joe Biden, who invited Solzhenitsyn, who supported NATO expansion, is now talking about allowing minor Russian incursions into Ukraine. It's not the same person.
1: It's not the same person. It's not not the same staff. It's not the same principles. It's not the same understanding of the stakes. And I think the best answer to the question of what the hell happened to that Joe Biden, other than the passage of time, is the one we got from Josh Kraushauer last week on a podcast, which is they ran as moderate But they're running this White House like a bunch of squad members and squad members don't give a damn about the human freedom of others or about our national security. They're the people who think this country is a terrible country and shouldn't stand on its high horse telling anybody what to do. Seriously. Is there a better example?
0: No. It's a perfect place to end. It's depressing. And uh, I hope that we can muster the intestinal fortitude to stand up to Putin on this, because if Putin is allowed to invade Ukraine and gets away with it, then the consequences, you combine that with the weakness of the Afghan withdrawal, allowing Putin to roll over Ukraine, and boy, oh, boy, are a lot of dictators and a lot of bad guys around the world gonna say, America. America isn't back. <laughs> right. America <laughs> and, and, has stepped and back. And America, America has stepped back, and now is the time. Before somebody else gets elected president who has a different approach, now is the time to take our chances and get things done.
1: Well, that is a depressing note. This is our tradition. Anyway, <laughs> share with your friends, send us comments, subscribe, rate. Thanks for listening.
0: Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at at aei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast.
1: If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this.
0: Thanks for listening.